reading this morning, if you want to turn with me, is Matthew 7. We're actually going to start from verse 21 through to the end. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will ever will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. So today uh, we finish the Sermon on the Mount, and as uh, Tom said, it's kind of bittersweet. Um, I've so kind of enjoyed um, spending so much time in just the direct teachings of Jesus. Um, I say direct because all scripture is, is really of God. It's his teaching. Um, but to, to, to have these, the words that have actually come out of Jesus' mouth, um, and they give us such a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like, but also the people in the kingdom of God, what we as followers of Jesus should look like um, in, in this way. And so just to kind of review, um, if you remember, uh, we kind of started off with what the people of the kingdom are like, with the Beatitudes, this description of, of what we as followers of Jesus should be characterized by, um, that we should be also salt and light. We then moved into this section of greater righteousness, which kind of takes most of, of the sermon. We are to have a greater righteousness if we are to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus juxtaposes this against the scribes and the Pharisees. And he does this because they would have been seen to have been the um, elite religious folks at the time. And, and the question is, well, if, if it has to exceed their righteousness, who in the world could do that? Um, and he looks at our greater righteousness in relation to God's laws. Uh, we see Jesus fulfilling the law. Um, we looked at anger and lust, divorce, um, uh, loving our, our, our enemies. And then we moved into a section of greater righteousness and devotion to God. What does that look like in our giving and generosity, our, our prayer life, our fasting, um, these religious practices that we have? And then into a greater righteousness as it relates to the world, both the material things that we possess and uh, people. We looked at our, um, our relationship to money and things, our anxiousness, judging other people, asking and seeking of the Lord, um, the idea of the golden rule, how we should treat other people. And then we're in this final concluding kind of section that we'll finish today um, where Jesus really gives us an invitation this invitation in verse 13 and 14 to enter into the kingdom by the narrow gate. Not the broad path that most people are on, he says. Um, but to enter into the, 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 the narrow gate, the narrow path. Um, one that's harder to find, but one that actually leads to life and not to destruction is the broad one. We then looked at the idea of two prophets or two kinds of fruit on a tree. Um, false fruit, false teaching, false prophets. And true fruit um, that is born um, in our life. And then today we're going to finish off by looking at the idea of two builders or two foundations. And all of these three, um, both paths and prophets and building, um, are really three different examples of, of the same choice that God is going to give us. Jesus is, is inviting us into this life of a deeper righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves or from within, but comes from him. And it's a life then that if we'll live in accordance to that, if we'll actually practice the way of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, looking to his word um, for direction in our life, that that will actually lead us into a life of flourishing. It will lead us into the, 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 the uh, place that God had always intended for us to be in his presence in the Garden of Eden, 
um, before we rejected that and kind of messed that up with sin. This is our way back in. This is our way back to Eden, if you will. To be reconciled to God. To be in a place of human flourishing once again. Um, Or we can base our life on a different kind of foundation. But as we're going to see, it's one that doesn't actually last. It's one that doesn't actually um, provide the stability that we're looking for. Um, And so Jesus is asking us this morning to make a choice. We have a choice that we actually have to make. Jesus is driving us to make a decision. And the word choice is a big part of our kind of cultural discourse, isn't it? It's something um, that we think is kind of key to any flourishing society, right? We're, we love choices. Just go to any kind of restaurant, right? Um, menu, the bigger the menu, the more choices we have, you know, the greater that is, right? We love this idea of choice. Um, even in something as controversial as like abortion, we don't talk about being pro-abortion, we talk about being pro-choice, It's not the abortion we like, it's the choice to have one that we really like. In his book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, Barry Schwartz describes what he calls the official dogma of Western industrial societies. That's what you and I live in. Um, He he describes this as the dogma of the culture that you and I live in. He says, "If uh, if we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. And the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more people have, the more freedom they have. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. The more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. He says this idea, this way of thinking is so deeply embedded in the water supply that it wouldn't occur to anyone to question it. And it's also deeply embedded in our lives. We highly value the ideas of freedom and choice. And the idea that these are universally good doesn't even, it means that we don't even think about discussing that. We just know it. But what Schwartz will go on to show in his book, and what we know from our own experience, I think, is that more choice doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness or even more freedom. One effect, paradoxically, is that it produces paralysis rather than liberation. With so many options to choose from, people find it difficult to choose at all. You ever sat down and like, oh, let's watch something on Netflix. And you go to bed not having watched anything on Netflix, having spent 20 to 30 minutes trying to decide what to watch on Netflix and then just said, forget it. It's just overwhelming. There's too many choices. I I don't even know what I want anymore. I'm just going to go to bed. Anybody? Just me. No, you're all laughing and giggling because we've, that's our common experience. Uh, The philosopher Renetta Salisi has written a book called The Tyranny of Choice. I love that title. The tyranny of choice. Because she understands that anxiety, fear, and even the guilt associated with many choices we face today. We love freedom. We want to have our choices. We want to have all our options available. But by choosing one of these options, we are by definition ruling out another. And what if that's a mistake? What if I make the wrong choice? What if I choose the wrong thing? What if I get three episodes in and I realize, oh, I didn't, I, this isn't the, uh, what I wanted to watch and I've wasted 90 minutes of my life? To choose, to have to choose, is to have to restrict ourselves in some way. And we just don't like the thought of that, do we? We want to be unencumbered, unrestricted free agents. So we worry that we might get it wrong. We worry that we might miss out in some way. We either freeze with this paralysis that Schwartz talks about, or we choose, and then we worry we've made the mistake. We second-guess ourselves into unhappiness. So here's Jesus saying we must choose. And we don't necessarily immediately think, oh, great. We can't remain neutral to what Jesus has been saying, what we've been looking at for months We can't just hold it at arm's length, keeping it in some category of ideas or thoughts. Jesus is compelling us, demanding that we choose, that we respond. What we'll actually see today, to not choose is to choose. To not to respond to Jesus' teaching is to respond. And what I want us to see this morning is that the choice 
that he is urging us to make, it does necessarily force us to go one way and not the other. You will have to choose to go down a narrow path rather than the broad one. You'll have to choose a foundation on which to build your life upon rather than a different one. You'll have to choose which teachers you'll have to listen to, of which, by the way, we're all listening to. But in light of everything that he has said through this sermon that we've been unpacking for months now, I want us to remember and see that he is holding out the way of life and blessing and saying, choose this. He's holding before us flourishing and warning us about choosing an alternative that will ultimately be destructive. If not in this life, certainly at the end. But more often than not, even in this life, he says, I've come to give you life to the full, life Life abundantly. That's not just in the afterlife. That is now. That is the peace that we just sung about. That is available only through him. Is hope that is only available through him. And in order to do this, this is what Jesus is asking us to do. It's something that we're not very good at as humans. Certainly I'm not always. He wants us to stop and to look forward. He wants us to look ahead. Follow your options to their conclusion. And see where they lead. And he starts by calling us to choose. The two paths, the teachers, the fruit. The two paths, remember, we said the broad one leads to destruction. The narrow one leads to life. And broad isn't just this kind of worldly living, irreligious, apart from God. The atheists are all on the broad road. Remember the context of Jesus' teaching is putting this against the Pharisees and the teachers, the scribes, the religious people. He says those people, the highly religious, the highly moral, the self-justified people are also on the broad road. That's the scary part, isn't it? Jesus is calling us to a deeper righteousness that flows from a regenerate, transformed heart. A work that only his spirit can do. Not external behavior modification to be grafted and grinded out to be seen by others as living a good life. Sinclair Ferguson, um, great Scottish pastor and preacher, he has this illustration comparing what Jesus says here about the broad path uh, to... uh, to Doctor Who's TARDIS, right? So from the outside, the TARDIS looks like an old-fashioned British police box, but on the inside, the TARDIS is spacious, it's comfortable, and the setting for a whole world of excitement and adventure. The paradoxical nature of the TARDIS bears a striking similarity to what Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God. Everything depends on whether you experience it from the outside or the inside, (laughs) On the inside, we see that the road that first appeared so narrow is now spacious, and it's the only one that leads to life. The two prophets are teachers. The false are true. Which ones will we follow? We look to their attitude towards God's people. Whatever their appearance, whatever their chat, do they follow the example of the good shepherd and lay down their life for the sheep? Or do they devour the flock like ravenous wolves? Does the teacher use the church or, or missional community to serve his own interest, her own interest? Does he carry his leadership as a right or as a responsibility? Do they promote peace and unity in their leadership? Or do they do things that cultivate division, turning the flock on each other? Do they lead in such a way that shows an obvious love for those entrusted to their care? Are they humble or do they lord it over the church? Look at the fruit of their teaching. You will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. As the leader goes, so go those who are led. So whether a teacher is faithful or false isn't just in their teaching, but it's also in their character, but in the character of those that they teach and lead. Are those that are under their care, are they growing in Christlikeness? We need to look to their character, not just their gifts. There have been, we see in verse 21, there are some teachers who have been used by God even to do remarkable things who aren't truly his. And that's terrifying to someone who has to stand up here and and say these things. 
It's sobering. I thought Tom and John did a good job um, teaching that last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But these are the things that we as an eldership have to consider of ourselves. It's so easy, isn't it, to turn on the TV and, and look at the, like, you know, prosperity preachers and be like, oh, look at those false teachers. They're terrible. We have to actually stand and look in our own mirror and ask these things of ourselves. It's possible to preach so that people are brought to Christ. It's even possible to exercise supernatural gifts, preside over sincere supernatural manifestations of the work of God and still be a stranger to the grace of God. How do we know that? Because we see it all through the scripture. Even in the magicians, remember in Egypt, they performed some of the same miracles that Moses did. Paul tells us it's possible to have the appearance of godliness without its true power or a sincere relationship with God. The things that people do in public ministry are no sure sign of their righteousness. The false teacher places his confidence in what he has been able to do. And we're going to look at this more more broadly as it applies to all of us. But gifts are given by God to be deployed for the sake of others, not for the sake of the gifted individual. So we can never point to gifts as a mark of God's favor of our lives. Too often we can confuse gifts with grace. It's God's grace that we rely upon. Thank God he's given us the gifts to build up the church. And we're going to talk more about it in the autumn um, what those things look like for us. We need to be careful not to push people forward in ministry because they have gifts. If they haven't been appropriately shaped by the grace of God, if their character is lagging miles behind their gifting, it creates problems of all sorts. Powerful preaching says nothing about the preacher. Miraculous activity says nothing about the heart of the one doing those things. And so we want to look past gifts to character in order to discern the integrity of their faith. And these are the standards you need to hold us as your elders to. We pray that God would develop those things in us, that he would keep us humble, um, that our fruit might be genuine and real. And then Jesus moves to conclude, not just this section, but the whole sermon with one final choice. And this is what we're going to look at today more closely. Remember, we see those who say but don't do. These are the empty words of verse 21 to 23. But we also have these who hear but don't do. This isn't just empty words. These are empty hearts um, that we're looking at today. So in verses 24 to 27, the Lord again reminds us that the standard of righteousness that is required for the kingdom of God. And unless your life is built upon that standard, built upon that foundation, no matter what it looks like, no matter uh, what you know in your head, no matter how feverishly you conduct your spiritual activity, when the flood comes, you're going to get washed away if all of we have is head knowledge. Now, again, Jesus is constantly not attacking the pagans in this. He's looking to the religious people. And trying to dismantle that. The Pharisees had developed a system of works, of righteousness, of humanly devised system of self-stimulating fleshly efforts that fell far short. And God comes along and he offers them true righteousness through the Messiah. But before they could receive true righteousness, they had to note the bankruptcy of their own system. And that's why they had to come with this beatitude mentality. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is busy in the Sermon on the Mount dismantling this kind of paper palace that they have built piece by piece. And then by the time he gets to chapter 7, he's completely destroyed their religious security. And he forces them to make the same decision he's asking us in verses 13 to 14. And he tells them, listen, it's not going to be an easy choice because there's going to be false prophets who will deceive you as they deceive themselves. And so the contrast is between two people who hear both of these people building, both of the builders in this have heard. Both are building. They're both involved in um, spiritual activity. We see this. Both individuals build a house. Secondly, it's apparent that they both build their house in the same general location because it's the same storm that hits both the houses. So they're both building houses. 
They're both building in similar, in a, in a same location where the same storm can hit. And this is important for us because true believers and false believers in, invariably live side by side. This is what Jesus is driving at. They're on the same block. They attend the same church. They go to the same Bible studies. They're so similar in the building that they build that they're indistinguishable to most people. Jesus tells another parable about wheat and tares growing up together. And the disciples are like, well, should we get in there and pull all the weeds? And he's like, no, no, just let them grow. They'll just have to grow together. It won't be until the harvest. It won't be until it's time where everything is harvested and brought in that you'll be able to tell the difference. The third thing that we see is they apparently build it in the same way because the Lord says the only difference is the foundation. He doesn't imply that the house itself is any different. Both people build a house. They build it in the same general area. They build it seemingly in the same way. There's not much that you can tell, the, tell them apart by. In other words, they both carry a Bible. They both go through certain prayers. They both do spiritual activities. They both probably give money, right? They both fast. All the things that Jesus has been describing. And really, it all looks very much the same until you come down to the crux of the matter. And that's the foundation upon which they are building this edifice upon. What is the foundation that they are laying this building on? Because the foundation is what you really are hoping, that's what you're, you're banking, will keep your house solid. Um, we live in, a, fortunately, a very safe place. If it weren't for the people, Ireland could be one of the safest places to live, right? We don't live on any kind of fault lines. There's no volcanoes. There's no, you know, um, the massive heat wave. What did it get up to, like, 23 degrees or something? Like, there's not much here. But, but there are places uh, in the world um, where you really have to consider um, the foundation that you're building on. You, do, you have to do that here, too. You have to do it everywhere. Um, but places like Southern California or along the Pacific Rim, places that are prone um, to earthquakes, how you build and what you build upon, how deep you lay your foundations is critically important. I'm no builder. There's some of you here that are. Um, but this is basic construction 101. If your foundation is off, if your foundation isn't on, on bedrock, if your foundation isn't on, on something that will hold the structure upon which it is built, it is only a matter of time before the cracks start to form, before earth starts to shift, and you get exposed. This is what Jesus is doing. It's only an honest and careful, soul-searching self-examination that can reveal the truth. Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to come off their proud high tower and take a look at their own lives to see how really spiritually bankrupt they are. Because that's the only place you can really tell. In verse 24, one builds on a rock. This isn't, there's different Greek words for, for rocks. Um, one is like a rock, like a boulder or a stone. Um, the word that he uses here is petros, not petra, and it really means a rock bed. It's drilling down. It's scraping back all the dirt to get down to the bedrock. It's not a single stone. The other builds on sand. There's, there's nothing solid he's building it on. It's all shifting Wash, it can be just washed away. And again, we see this powerful rebuke of, of the religion of the Pharisees. They had no regard for true spirituality of soul. They had no regard for purity of heart. They had no regard for integrity of, of, true, of true behavior, internal behavior. It was all external. They had no regard for obedience to God that really mattered. They were building their big spiritual structure on sand. They prayed, sure. They fasted, sure. They gave to the poor, sure but only as a public show to parade their supposed spirituality, to enhance their reputations. They had a religion of externals, and Jesus says it's all sand. It, it won't actually stand up. 
Arthur Pink puts it this way. He says, they bring their bodies to the house of prayer, but not their souls. They worship with their mouths, but not in spirit and in truth. They're sticklers for all the ways we do our religion, for immersion, early morning communion, but they take no thought about keeping their hearts with all diligence. They boast in their orthodoxy, but disregard the precepts of Christ. And so when we build our life on the rock, what is it that we're saying? Well, we could, we could make a case, well, what is this rock? Because I want us to be clear. We could make a, a, a case that the, the, the rock is God, that you're li- literally building your life on God. And of course that is true, but I think we need to be more specific, right? Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock. So we could say that rock is God. That is true. The Pharisees, I think, would also say that. They would affirm that. They'd say uh, that. Or we could say, well, the rock is more specifically Christ, right? He is the chief cornerstone upon which we build. Peter affirms this. Paul affirms this. And that's true. But again, I want us to be even more specific A step further. What is Jesus saying? He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine builds his house upon a rock. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and what? Does them. It's the doing of what Jesus says. It's not just God in some kind of nebulous way. It's not even a more specific Christian way to think about God is Jesus. It's what Jesus is actually asking of us. It's what Jesus demands of the world. We only know a person through the way they communicate to us. And Jesus says it's actually doing, it's putting into practice those things. That's the rock upon which we build our our life. The foundation isn't Jesus in, in, in some general way. It's Jesus in a specific way of how he's revealed himself and what he's asked us to do to enter the kingdom of God that we build our life upon. That is the rock. That is the foundation that we build upon. The rock is the obedience to the word of God revealed in the Logos himself. Jesus is the word of God in flesh. That is the rock. Yes, it is God. Yes, it is Christ, the chief cornerstone. But specifically, it's what Jesus says, and us doing that is what Jesus says is is the foundation in this text. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And this is such an important distinction for us to make. Genuine Christianity versus cultural Christianity. This isn't, this isn't, necessarily something that has to, like when I, when, when I was in Turkey, this is a distinction that has to be made, but it's just general kind of religion. Because you have real devout Muslims and you have to distinguish that. And we can think, well, that's what they need to be distinguished by. It's just as important that we distinguish that in a place like Northern Ireland that has a, 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 a heritage of Christianity. This is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to show what the real people of God are like apart from the people who are claiming to be the people of God. It's not the pagans that he's, that he's um, comparing here. It's the people who would say, we are the people of God. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. How does that manifest itself in a place like Northern Ireland? Um, there's a great book that I would commend to you by a guy called Dean and Sarah. It's called The Unsaved Christian, Reaching cult- Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. Um, and this is applicable in a place like Northern Ireland, where a lot of people would call themselves Christian. And by that, just they mean they believe in God, right? They're theists. They're not Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. They grew up, you know, in a Christian kind of home, country. They try to be a good person. And that's what they mean. Um, There's a a term for this called moral therapeutic deism. Moral because they try to be good. Therapeutic because it kind of makes you feel better. And deism because there's a God out there somewhere. They're, They're not 
atheists, they're deists, they believe in a God. And here's what all of those things have in common. People who, who are cultural Christians. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. We would affirm that, right? Sure. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most other religions. A third thing they believe, the central good in life, the central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Fourthly, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifthly, good people go to heaven when they die. Moral therapeutic deism, and I would say there's loads of people who would call themselves Christians, and that's what they believe. The problem with that is there's some truth in that, but Jesus is going to say that isn't, uh, that isn't a righteousness that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. I want us to um, look at one other passage of Scripture to help us unpack this a little bit more. Turn, uh, if you will, to Luke 18. Luke 18, uh, verse 9 to 14. This is going to give us some insight, I think, even deeper into this um, area. Um, Because most of us, I think, um, most in this room would probably claim faith in God of some kind. Maybe you're here today and and you're like, no, actually I don't. And I'm here just trying to figure that out. You've picked a great Sunday to be here. We're glad you're here. Look at Luke 18, 9 to 14. And he also told this parable. This is Jesus telling a parable. To who? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, so this is, this is, again, this is the same kind of person that he's contrasting in the Sermon on the Mount. People who are trusting in themselves for their righteousness and looking down at other people with contempt. And this is the story he tells them. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors basically were working for Rome, an occupying force, joining forces essentially Uh, with an occupying force to tax their fellow citizens, often taxing them more than what was required to take a cut off the top. So they're colluding with the enemy, essentially, if you will. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prays thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, that's the tax collector, by the way, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What is, he, what is he boasting about? All the things that Jesus has talked about so far in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? This righteousness. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What an incredible story. And this is the choice, again, that Jesus is bringing us to. It's the most important question that you can ask yourself today. The most important question that any human could ask themselves. How can I be justified before God? How can I be declared innocent or right before God? And this is what Jesus is unpacking in both of these examples and parables that we see today. And he tells this parable to the person who trusted themselves that they were righteous. I'm a Christian because I I do good things. I'm a good person. I'm not like these other people. So it's so easy to look at the Pharisees as this kind of um, real hyperbolic version of that and yet not recognize ourselves in that as well. How many times do I compare myself with other people to make myself feel better about myself? Well, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife. I don't, like, cheat on my taxes. Like, I'm basically, it's exactly what the Pharisee's doing here, is it not? Well, and, and then not also do I not just do bad things. I do good things. I give, I tithe, I, I do all these things while looking down at other people. 
His righteousness is a religious righteousness. It's not a secular righteousness. He's looking to all the good things that we would want him to. We see evidence of his religious devotion. If we're to be really honest, the description that we see of this Pharisee sounds like a great person. It sounds like the kind of person you would make an elder in a church. Faithful to his wife. He's just. He's honest in his, in his dealings. The guy tithes. Fasts. Like religious practices. But the problem, Jesus says, is he is trusting in his God-given, or so he thinks, righteousness to make him justified before God. When it came to being declared right before God, he was trusting in the wrong things to save him. It was a wrong basis. It was a wrong foundation of what he was building his life upon. And here's the thing. He's not presented as some kind of legalist, someone who tries to earn his salvation. He's acknowledging that it's from God. I thank you, God. He acknowledges that it's from the Lord. But it is, it, it's his righteousness that he's looking to, even if he thinks it's God that's given him that righteousness. It's his righteousness that he's looking to, to build the foundation upon his life. It's those things that, that it's, this is the evidence that I'm going to present in the court. At the end of our life, we stand before God. What's the evidence that you're declared innocent before God? This Pharisee would say, look at all the things that I've done. Look at all my righteousness. I fast. I was, I was, and it was all because of God. It was God's grace that, that allowed me to do that. But this is, this is the evidence that I'm going to show. And what does Jesus say? It's not him that goes away justified. It's the other guy. It's the other guy who looks away from himself, who has nothing to offer, and just pleads for God's mercy. What's the evidence that he presents before God? God's grace and his mercy. That's it. It's what Jesus has done. We have even more clarity than the audience of, of the Sermon on the Mount. We have even more clarity than the audience uh, of the people who are trying to be self-justified. Because Jesus is telling these stories before his death and resurrection and ascension. We have even more clarity now. We are in such a privileged position to, to see and to understand that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that secure these things for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knows, knew, knew, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in him. It's in our union with Christ that we are made right before God. Paul would say in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, and that gain was all of his accolades as a Pharisee. Pharisee of Pharisees, so much so that he would say he was perfect in all of those things. Now what does he say? He says, I count all that as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. The word there is actually excrement, dung. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, that we present being made right before God. This is the foundation upon which we build our life. Romans 3.23 for all of sin, that's all of us, we've all fallen short of the glory of God and are justified so how are we justified? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
That's exactly what the Pharisee is looking to. Works of the law, even though he thinks it's God who's allowed him to accomplish those works, it's his works of the law that he is pointing to. And Jesus has been dismantling all of this throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. You have to have a deeper righteousness, a greater righteousness than the Pharisees who rely on keeping the law. It's not a foundation upon which to build your life. Romans 10, 3-4, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. One Corinthians 1, 30 to 31. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Pharisee seems to be boasting in the Lord. Lord, I thank you that you've done these things in my life. But he isn't. He's really boasting in himself. He doesn't look to God to become his righteousness. He looks to God to help him be his own righteousness. As the basis for his justification. Now, Is it wrong to do these things? No. But don't mistake your sanctification for your justification. This is important. These are big words. Let me just explain them. I'm sure some of you know them. Justification, so we're very clear. It's an act of God to make you just, to make you right, innocent. Because we are united to Christ and he is just, it is his righteousness We sung that, clothed in his righteousness alone. That's what makes us right before God through faith. Sanctification then. Also an act of God through his spirit and his word to change us step by step into more of the likeness of Jesus. It is the fruit of the spirit being produced in us. And Jesus is the righteousness for us and he is the righteousness in us. But the second is built on the first. Your sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is built on the foundation of your justification. And that is what Christ has done for you apart from any of your obeying the law. Our obeying the law is a result of that. But now it's the law of love. It's out of our response to what Jesus has done for us that we obey and keep his commandments. It's not uh, uh, under the law in the sense that the Pharisees were trying to keep the law. Our good works would never be sufficient enough to vindicate ourselves before God Almighty. But Jesus is our. It is him that we turn to and we look to. In John chapter 8, Verse 30, it says this, it's, as he spoke these words, Jesus is teaching again, it says, many believed on him. Now that's a good thing, right? We hear the words of Jesus, we believe on him. They heard, they listened, they took it in, they, they accepted. But Jesus said to them, it continues, uh, it says, many believed on him. But Jesus said to them, if you continue or if you abide in my word, then you are my real or true disciples. It's not just enough to say we believe, it's continuing, it's abiding in. It's continuing to walk out a life of repentance. It isn't just the hearing and believing. It's the continuing in obedience to the word of God. That's the rock that we base our life on. That's the foundation. James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Why? Deceiving your own selves. This is exactly what the Lord is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees had deceived themselves. If you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. Looks at himself in a mirror, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. That's what it means to hear but not do. Look in a mirror, you go away, it has no effect on your life. You forget what you've even seen. Colossians 1, 21. And you that were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works... I've now been reconciled 
if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled. It's a life of obedience to Jesus that is the evidence that we've built our life on the true foundation of what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus says, when the storm comes, whether that's in this life or at the end of this life, the house that's still standing is the one that is built on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus, what he has done on our behalf. And that gospel so radically transforms us and changes us. It changes our desires. It changes our, 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 our wants. It changes the choices that we make. Last one, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we do know that we know him. Okay, so maybe you're asking that question today. Well, am I? Do, how do I know that I know him? <laughs> if, if we can be self-deceived, then how do I know that I know? Well, John tells us, and by this we know that we know, if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Paul writes to Titus, Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Okay, how do they deny him? These are people who profess to know God, but in their life they deny him. How? It says they are detestable and disobedient. They're just, they just don't obey Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. It's all lip service. You can know all the right things. Listen, the Pharisees and the scribes would have run theological circles around people. And yet Jesus says, they're not the ones who walk away justified. We can claim to be a Christian. We can profess it verbally. We can have head knowledge. But if there's no walking out a life of obedience, and and listen, that doesn't mean we're perfect people. Part of obedience is just repenting. It's a life of repentance. It's ongoing repentance because we, we sin. We screw up. We, our, our, our hearts are torn. We make wrong decisions. We choose the wrong things at times. But the Spirit of God convicts us of those things. We recognize that. We're grieved by that. We turn to Jesus once again, living a life of ongoing repentance. This is what it means to obey. Or is it a life of disobedience and always and constantly justifying that disobedience. In Luke 6, 47 and 48, that's the parallel passage to this. He says the wise man dug deep. The wise man had to dig deep to get to the bedrock. That's harder to dig deep. Much easier just to, to build on the sand without digging. Especially if you have to dig deep to get to the foundation. It's tough. It's hard. It's harder work. Jesus says it's worth it. It's worth it. Digging deep is the one who digs deep. He empties himself of his self-righteousness, empties himself of self-sufficiency, knows that he's not commendable, knows that we, who we are, that our hearts are desperately wicked, that we're sinful people. And in light of that, knowing who God is makes maximum effort to strive to enter in. That maximum effort isn't relying on our own self-righteousness. It's to place the word of God in our heart that we might not sin, that we would obey. It's a person digging deep that's interested in a genuine love relationship with Jesus. A heart that obeys out of love, not a routine of spiritual activity. Building a life on the word of God. Building for God's glory and not his own. This is the choice that Jesus asked us to make. And remember what we said at the beginning. It's a life that leads to flourishing. It's a, li- it's a life that leads to life and not one that leads to destruction. It's a life with God in the presence of Jesus. Fullness of joy. In this life and the next. Or we can choose to do our own thing. We can reject that foundation. Build upon our own foundations. Build upon what is sand essentially. And Jesus describes the end of that as a great fall. 
a life choosing to live separated from God, dressed up as religious as, as, as you want it to be, it's still a life apart from the power and presence of Jesus. It's all relying on self, even if it's self that you give credit God for like the Pharisee did. And Jesus says that just gets washed away in the end. There's no substance there. And Jesus is pleading us to make that choice today. Can I finish with one last passage? This is 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10. This is, I think, a great description of genuine faith that Paul is describing. Listen to what he says. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, consistently mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. What is he saying? They put into practice. They actually obeyed. They walked this out. For you received the word in must affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, turned to God, sorry, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul was certain they would be delivered of the wrath to come. And there is judgment coming. But God, in his patience and his long-suffering, not, wi- not willing that any should perish, gives us time. It's his kindness that leads us to, to repentance. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. It's what he's been calling us to. It's time to make this decision again. That we might be delivered from the wrath to come. We end um, each Sunday um, by coming to the table, by breaking bread, dipping it in wine, the symbol of Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, remembering the crucifixion that Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved, that Jesus was able to be victorious over death in ways that we, we would never be able to be on our own. And we have the decision and the choice to make today of what, what foundation we'll build our life upon, what master we'll serve, what gate we'll enter, what road we'll travel. And that's that decision that we have to make every day, isn't it? It's how we continue in the faith. It's how we know we persevere to the end. One of the stories that Jesus tells is um, a story of four soils. And only one of the four is, is a genuine. But what's interesting is one of the soils, a seed lands in the soil and it actually starts to grow. Now, in the genuine soil, the seed starts to grow. So during that period of time where both are growing, how would you know which one is real and isn't? Well, the answer is you wouldn't. It's only until one withers away because the soil just wasn't good enough. It wasn't deep enough. The roots couldn't go down deep enough. It looks like it's got life, but it withers off and dies. The one in the good soil, the deep soil, the one who could put its roots all the way down is the one who bears fruit in the end. And that's us, our decision to continue that God has chosen us, that he has has counted us among his own. The evidence of that is a life continuing in in love and obedience to him, of deeper affection to him. And so today, if you're not a Christian, you're like, listen, I've never 
I've never actually put my faith and hope in what Jesus has done for me. I'm what you've described before. I'm, I'm just relying on being a pretty good person. Uh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But I've never actually come to the realization that it was what he has done for me to relieve me of the burden of my sin, that it is his righteousness that I build my life upon. It is his righteousness that I will present as evidence in the end to be made right with God. Today can be that day of salvation for you. It's a free gift that God God gives us. We just acknowledge that. We turn to him. We confess our sin and repent. Or if you're like me, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a while. It's been over, it's close to 40 years now for me. But every day is a new day. His mercies are new every day. Jesus gives us fresh manna every day. And it's constantly feeding on him. It's constantly coming back to feed on the flesh and blood of Jesus. To be nourished by him. To be strengthened by his spirit. That's how we know that we know. And so maybe today is one of those days where we recommit. Maybe it's been a while. We can feel like we wither on the vine. We can enter into those dry seasons where we forget to repent. We forget to to feed on Jesus for our strength. We start to rely on our own goodness. We start to look to ourselves instead of him and what he has accomplished to warm our hearts at the fire of the gospel once again. May this be an opportunity for that. As we come, if you're a Christian, to receive bread and wine, to be reminded of the foundation upon which we build our life upon. As we consider ourselves, as we repent of our sin once again and, and, and come to receive this means of grace. And if you're not a Christian, may today be that day. May, may today be the day that you respond to the good news. Enter into a life of obedience to Jesus that leads to flourishing. It's not a perfect life. Suffering comes along with it. Trust me, it's not easy all the time. Digging deep foundations isn't easy. But it is satisfying. It is full. And it leads us to life everlasting. Which will we choose today? Let's pray. Father, it is your grace and goodness and kindness um, that has delivered the message that we have heard today. Um, the fact that it's Jesus himself who gives us this. You don't stay distant away off in heaven somewhere that you took on flesh, that you know what it's like to experience all of, of being a human. Father, that you lived a life that we could never live, a life that was fully dependent on the righteousness of God, a sinless life to be our sacrifice. The evidence that you had beaten death by the resurrection, Father, that we have that resurrection hope. Father, I pray that your um, spirit would draw those who don't know you today to yourself. And Father, I pray that you would also draw us, your children. We can be rebellious at times. Father, we can look to other things that think will satisfy us. And Father, would you just, would you save us from those things again, even today? Save us from ourselves, from our self-righteousness not just from our irreligious, wandering, seeking worldly pleasures, but, Father, from our religious efforts seeking to justify ourselves by our goodness. Father, this morning we once again just plead the blood of Jesus that covers our sin, that brings us into communion with you once again. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy to us. May this just be a burning reality in our life, 
a reality that we can build our life upon. May we know this to be true, even today.